basically we can improve our performance without affecting to our VO2 max or to our lactic threshold. By just including strength training on our training plans, we can improve our running economy, our efficiency, and therefore we can improve our performance. The Triathlon Show 117. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Jordan Santos, who is Associate Professor at the University of Basque Country in Spain, and we'll discuss a variety of uh, topics related to running science, like how to best estimate the lactate threshold in running, periodization and uh, training intensity distribution, running economy, how important it is, and how you can improve it in practice, we go deeper into strength training and its impact on running performance. And we talk about predictors of running performance that are both physiological and not physiological in some cases. Jordan has done and supervised research in all of these areas and has a ton of knowledge about the science in running and is a very good athlete himself, as you'll hear in the interview when we discuss VO2 max uh, for a bit. And it's also worth mentioning that uh, he has worked with uh, Professor Tim Noakes and Dr. Ross Tucker, two of the most famous sports scientists in the world, uh, when he worked as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Cape Town. But let's get right into the interview after thanking our sponsors. First, Precision Hydration, that make electrolyte products to help you keep performing and stave off cramps even in long races and in hot races. You do not want to go into a 70.3 or a longer race without a specific electrolyte replacement plan. And I recently had a listener email me and ask how I get carbohydrates in in training and racing since uh, the precision hydration drinks only have electrolytes and no carbs. And the answer is gels and sometimes bars, bars more in training than in racing. This makes it super easy to stay on top of how much carbs have I consumed and how much electrolyte have I consumed. Uh, you don't need to do any advanced math, like at least for me it would be advanced if I had them all mixed up in the same bottle. Plus it is very easy on the stomach when you do it like this and don't mix the two together. And I often use uh, isotonic gels that can be consumed without a liquid to accomplish this. All listeners can get their first box of Precision Hydration Electrolyte product for free on precisionhydration.com when you use the discount code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. This episode is also sponsored by Ventum. We've talked about the new Ventum Z mechanical already, and I think it's uh, revolutionary, really, in that Ventum is taking a super bike and they make it available for the masses at a very affordable price. The Ventum C mechanical uses the same unique patented frame design as the flagship model Ventum 1 that is famous for having no down tube and no seat stays plus a 1.4 liter water bottle integrated into the top tube of the frame. 
and they have different options for example you can get the complete bike the complete ventum c mechanical with vision team 30 wheels for three thousand five hundred dollars us dollars that is and for just the frame set which you can also buy you'd you'd pay just two thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars so check out the new ventum c mechanical as well of course as the flagship ventum one on ventumracing.com all right, let's get right into the interview with Jordan Santos. Today's guest on that triathlon show is Jordan Santos from the University of Basque Country, where he works as an associate professor. Jordan, how are you? Welcome to that triathlon show. Hello, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, my pleasure. I've heard you before on a couple of running podcasts and uh, I've been meaning to uh, to talk to you for a long time already about some of the things that you got going on. There are several interesting projects that you're working on. Let's jump right in and talk about your project on estimating the lactate threshold in distance runners. What can you tell us about that? Well, as you might know, lactate threshold is one of the main physiological determinants of endurance performance, together with running economy and the VO2 max. So I try to understand which lactate threshold method is the best one to adequately estimate running performance in runners of different levels. Because nowadays we have like thousands of methods, we have thousands of strategies to measure lactate threshold, and Every strategy has a different meaning. Even if it's a small difference between methods, we might not uh, calculate the exact uh, data point that we want for our training for our training plans. So basically, what I did was to see which uh, regression uh, equation is the best for lactate threshold determination, the ideal length of the workloads, the ideal recovery, and all these things. That's what I am doing at the moment. So can you talk a bit about what different alternatives are you comparing here? And for the gold standard, do you use an actual lactate threshold test or is it a VO2 max test where you're determining VT1 and VT2? Or what what are the details of the different testing protocols? Okay, the, the main problem with the incremental maximal test to determine the ventilatory thresholds is that in my opinion, in my humble opinion, the results are highly unreliable in many cases. We need a gas analyzer to determine them, and many runners feel quite a lot of discomfort when doing these kinds of tests. So sometimes the, the results you get doing an incremental maximal test on a treadmill is not the best. So that's why I prefer the classical lactate uh, tests on a track. And, and basically... Uh, the ideal or the gold standard actually is the maximal lactate steady state method. But you need like three or four training sessions in order to correctly determine the maximal lactate steady state. So I'm trying to work on the best strategy to determine the lactate threshold with only one session. And for what I've seen, the best method is to use the DMAX strategy, which is uh, is not the... Um, Maybe not the easiest one to calculate, but definitely the most reliable one. And and how does that session work? Can you describe the details of it? Yeah, uh, basically you have to do at least six workloads. Uh, the initial workload that should last around three minutes, but I usually do this test on a track. So basically three laps, which is around 1,200 meters. 
So every workload should have or either three or four minutes, or we can do it by distance. For example, three laps on a track. Uh, the initial intensity should be around 50% of the VO2 max. With 20 seconds of recovery, we increment the pace by 10%. So the next workload will be 60% of the VO2 max, another rest of 20 seconds. The next workload will be 70% of VO2 max, and so on, until completing six workloads. If you do this strategy, you get like quite nice data points, and you can calculate the lactate threshold by using different techniques. Uh, as I said, I prefer the D-max uh, strategy or the D-max method. So, so do you actually have a regression formula or some sort of equation? So if somebody, a listener, goes out and does this test, they can use already based on published research? Or is that something that is coming later? No, it's already published. Actually, when you get these six data points, you can perform a, a regression equation. And you can basically use two different regressions. One is the polynomial one the most typical one, the easiest one to understand. And the other one is the uh, exponential one. Uh, I've seen in my research that the exponential one is more reliable because it it doesn't get affected that much by the initial intensity. But I think that it's quite complex to calculate and a lot of people can find it a bit not that easy. So that's why I highly recommend to use the polynomial one instead. Okay, so so there is a, a published paper where people can find that equation and, and I can actually look it up and include that equation directly in the show notes to make it easy for people. But then it's basically a plug and play, I guess, that you just enter your, your data points from the from the test and then you get an estimate that is pretty accurate of your lactate threshold. Is that how it works? Well, basically, you have to go to Excel. Everyone has Excel on their laptops. So you include these data points and basically you add a, a regression line and you select the polynomial one. Do, by doing so, you get the, um, the lactate curve. And now when you have the lactate curve, you have to calculate the lactate threshold because with the curve, we can more or less estimate where it is because when we see that the lactate threshold, I mean that the lactate uh, increments exponentially, that will be more or less the lactate threshold. However, if we use the DMAX method, what we have to do is to draw a straight line from the first point to the last one and see what's the maximal distance between that line and the curve we calculated before. So the maximal distance will be the lactate threshold. Okay. And uh, so when you compare this to other tests, what, what other tests did you include? Well, I used, uh, for example, the onset of blood lactate accumulation, which corresponds to 4 millimoles of lactate. This has been used widely in the scientific literature for years. And as far as I know, many athletes still use that 4 millimoles of lactate as an indicator of the lactate threshold. But we have seen that this OBLA point is actually not the same for every athlete. It represents different intensities for different athletes. So that's why I wouldn't recommend the use of this of this one for if we want to, for example, estimate training intensities. And uh, do you have any idea how uh, these uh, tests compare to, for example, many athletes will do field tests like uh, and estimate their lactate threshold pace based on a 20-minute test, for example? What, what's your take on, on that? Well, it's definitely not the most reliable strategy, but a lot of people don't have access to a lactate analyzer. 
So I think that for people with no resources can be a good enough strategy, I will say. Have you compared the results that you may get from a field test with what you have if you actually have the lactate testing equipment? Yeah, we have done that. And actually, it differs between athletes. So for some athletes, the, the 20 minutes uh, test actually underestimates the lactate threshold. For other athletes, overestimates. So it's hard to say, actually, that we will find always the same error because it depends on the characteristic of the athlete. And how big can that uh, error typically be? Around 5%, more or less. Okay. Well, that, that's not, I guess, too dramatic. But So maybe people can, can still well, get back. Well, it's definitely it. not very bad. But at the same point, if we are training, for example, with elite-level athletes, we have to individualize the training intensities perfectly. So a 5% difference to the real lactate threshold might imply that our athlete is training way too hard and the risk of overtraining is always there so that's why for elite athletes i always recommend to do the proper field test using like lactate determinations okay got it so the next uh, topic i want to talk about is uh, periodization and training intensity distribution uh, and how that affects uh, performance in middle and long distance running that's another project you have uh, got going on so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, well, this was part of uh, one a PhD of mine. It's called Mark Kennelly. He was Olymp an Olympic runner in marathon in, in London 2012, and he's doing his PhD with me. So he wanted to focus on training intensity distribution. And basically, what he's trying to see is whether different periodizations are better for runners or not. So at the moment, most runners use either the pyramidal or the polarized training intensity distributions, the typical periodizations. But we've seen that, for example, in Kenya, most of the best athletes in the world use the threshold periodization. So we are trying to basically uh, unravel what's going on here and to see why the best runners in the world, which are the Kenyan ones, are using this threshold periodization, which according to the scientific literature is not the best. So why it works for them? when every study says that this kind of periodization is not the best. So we are working on that at the moment, and hopefully in a few months we will have an answer. Do you have any anything that you, have, uh, or that you already know based on that project, or is it still very much in a project that, is, that you're investigating? Well, we've done a literature review. Uh, it's published in the International Journal of Sport Physiology and Performance. And at the moment we are working with... Uh, uh, Team of uh, a team of elite athletes from Australia, so the Australian the Australian team of endurance runners, and we are working closely with some Australian coach called Nick Bido, who works with the best athletes in Australia for middle and long distance running, and we have tons of data, but we haven't analyzed them yet, so I don't have an answer unfortunately. Just quickly, in one brief or long sentence can you explain the pyramidal and uh, polarized and threshold uh, intensity distribution models for listeners that may not be aware of what they are okay so when we talk about periodization uh, we are talking about how we distribute the different training intensities for example for the polarized model we spend a lot of uh, volume at very low intensities in zone one, for example, well below the lactate threshold, and a lot of uh, volume at 
zone three, which is higher than the lactate threshold. Whereas we spent very little volume at zone two, which is the corresponding one to the lactate threshold intensity. That's for polarized. If we go to the threshold model, we spend a lot of training in the zone one below the lactic threshold and quite a lot of training in the threshold zone as well, in the zone two, with little volume performed at zone three, that is at high intensities. For the pyramidal model, we uh, spent a lot of training volume in the first zone, which is below the lactic threshold, a little bit less in the threshold zone, which is zone two, and a little bit less in the three zone, which is higher than the lactic threshold. So basically, these are the three main models. and They differ basically in the amount of training we do at different intensities. Yeah, got it. And for listeners that may be familiar with five zone systems here, this is simplified into three zones. So you have the uh, the first threshold between zone one and two, and the second threshold between uh, zone two and three. Exactly. Uh, so uh, let's move on to running economy. And that's also another topic that uh, you are very familiar with and involved with. How important is running economy and how can we improve it? Well, running economy, as I said at the beginning of the interview, is one of the main determinants of endurance performance. It has received uh, quite a lot of attention in the last decade, more or less, and we've seen that we can somehow predict if a runner is good or not only based on the running economy. The running economy is the amount of oxygen or the amount of energy we need to cover a set distance. Usually we say one kilometer, for example. And we have seen that, for example, elite Kenyan athletes, elite African athletes are more economical, are more efficient than European athletes of similar profiles. So with running economy, uh, we have like a huge margin of improvement because uh, similarly to what happens to other physiological determinants of endurance performance, running economy can be improved with training. And there are many ways to improve this. First, we can improve it by improving our biomechanical technique. If we have a bus technique because we overstride or because we do hill striking or something like that, by changing that, we might improve our running economy, become more efficient, and therefore to perform better. But there are other strategies to improve running economy. And the main one maybe is the use of strength training. By including proper strength training in our training plans, we might improve dramatically our running economy. And basically, we can improve our performance without affecting to our VO2 max or to our lactic threshold. By just including strength training on our training plans, we can improve our running economy, our efficiency, and therefore we can improve our performance. How much can performance improve if you improve if you include an appropriate strength training program? The improvements, uh, according to the scientific literature, can be huge, and by huge I mean close to ten percent. Obviously, at elite level, we won't see these kinds of improvements, but for recreational runners, the improvements will be dramatic because you you with the strength training you will become stronger, you will be able to tolerate higher training volumes, you will uh, reduce your risk of injury, you will increase your efficiency, you will be faster. So there are lots of uh, improvements going on when you do uh, strength training. So that's why it's so important to actually concentrate runners that running 
is not just going out to the park and do like a 12, 12k long run. To be an elite runner, you need to go to the gym. You need to hit the weights. You need to actually lift heavy. So going to the gym and do like a classic circuit with light weights, that's not the strength training. Actually, we've seen that the best strength training is when you do heavy lifts at the maximal speed you can move. So that's where the real improvement comes. And I definitely encourage every runner to try to develop their strength training and to include at least two sessions per week in order to see real improvements. So heavy lift with uh, with maximum speed. How heavy are we talking about? Do you have any percentage of one rep maximum guidelines for those lifts? Well, we have to work at uh, low reps, like around four, five reps, something like that. And that will be around 80% of the 1RM, more or less. But lifting as fast as possible. And going for the basic exercises, going for bench press, going for squats, going for hip thrusts, going for deadlifts, going for lunges. These kinds of exercises are the good ones. Yeah, I have an entire episode on kind of the science of strength training uh, in uh, triathlon. So uh, with running, as you say, the explosive fast lifts are effective. And also plyometrics, is that something that you uh, can talk about a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Plyometrics is like the typical drop jumps of doing hardless or multi-jumps. With the plyometrics, the, you can actually increase the stiffness of your tendons, and that's another strategy to improve running economy, actually. You can improve your efficiency quite a lot because you actually develop the, the capacity or the ability of the body to release elastic energy out of the tendons. So you can run, uh, let's say, with less energy you can keep the same speed by spending less energy and plyometrics is are great but obviously plyometrics are not for everybody for an elite runner or a middle distance runner then it's fine but for our recreational runners if we don't have a good technique or if we don't have somebody supervising how we do that kind of training we might be uh, in risk of having a, an injury so that's why usually our, our progression is recommended to start with heavy lifts as fast as possible at the beginning of the season and then just slowly slowly change to more explosive uh, strength training maybe by including olympic weightlifting doing snatches well maybe snatches are a bit complicated but doing for example cleans uh, and then slowly as we approach the competition uh, phase of the season we can include these plyometrics, running technique exercises, and so on. Mm, yeah, perfect. The, the one thing that complicates things a bit for triathletes is that for cycling, uh, yes, you the, still the same thing applies in that it's uh, heavy weights and, uh, and low reps, but uh, the explosive component doesn't seem to be as important as actually lifting like super heavy. So for triathletes, it's uh, finding a balance between the running and, and cycling. So maybe if you do two... Uh, gym workouts per week that's at least how i uh, prescribe strength training that if you do two workouts per week then one day will be more on the explosive side and one day will be just uh, heavy maximum strength 
kind of training. Uh, do you have any insight on, on that on the cycling side of performance or is it mostly running? Well, obviously with triathletes, the, there's a different story because you have to train for three different sports. And actually for a runner, it's, it's great to, to have, for example, a huge stiffness, but that huge stiffness might impair your performance in the swimming part. So as you say, we have to always find a balance between all the three modalities. Usually in triathlon, at least in order to, to be really successful, the most important part maybe is the running part. Because the cycling part with the drafting strategy actually is not that important or is not that determinant. But definitely a good runner will be a more successful triathlete than a, a good cyclist that can run. So I will still say that we have to find an, a, a balance, as you said, but definitely a strength training should be included. And yeah, a couple of uh, sessions per week is the minimum, I will say, for a, an athlete aiming to, to improve his, his performance. Mm. And going back to running economy, the umbrella topic here, is there anything else than strength training and improving technique, uh, if that's bad, that uh, we can use to improve running economy? Well, running economy is affected by many factors. Actually, sex can influence running economy. Usually, men are more efficient than women. Age influences running economy as well. We are less efficient as we get old. Uh, the ethnicity might influence running economy as well. We've seen that African runners are actually more efficient. Anthropometrical parameters influence running economy as well. If we have a lot of weight in the distal parts of the body, for example, if we have huge calves, that will, will impair our running economy. So the anthropometry, ethnicity, sex, uh, age, many factors affecting running economy. The only ones that we can actually change are biomechanics, and strength training unfortunately yeah and and biomechanics uh, do you have uh, any tips for how to go about it especially if we think about uh, uh, age groupers uh, that can be more beginner level or advanced level but uh, but not necessarily the elite uh, is, is that something that everybody should do, that you think everybody should do some sort of technique drill training or is it more if you have like some serious flaws in your running technique that you should try to get that sorted I would say that running technique exercises are key for a basic uh, training plan. So we can include running technique exercises, for the, for example, at the beginning of the season, like part of the warm-up or something like that. And by doing some basic exercises, we might improve our performance without putting too much effort on it. So according to certain papers published in the last few years, we know that uh, a four-foot strike pattern, for example, is more appropriate for running economy, but a lot of athletes can't uh, run four-foot, and they are heel strikers. So how to change that? There are many strategies. Barefoot running has been proposed as a strategy to switch for, from heel strike to four-foot running, but for many athletes, it's even impossible when doing barefoot, so there is no way they can change their strike pattern. Some others, by doing a eight weeks uh, barefoot training plan, they switch from heel strike to, to forefoot strike. So I will say that forefoot striking is one thing that we should aim for. Uh, we should aim for long strides. We should aim for low strike frequencies. I will suggest that maybe... That, can, 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 let me stop you there. A longer strides and lower stride frequency, that, that's something that... Uh, uh, 
it's interesting because we hear obviously you're not saying that we should overstride that's not what you're saying but it's rare that we hear this advice to aim for longer strides is that like something that you consciously should think about or do you mean that we can kind of change other parts of our biomechanics so that our stride as a consequence get longer can you get into that a bit well the, the first rule of biomechanical changes is that every conscious change will negatively affect your running economy so the way you run is the most economical way you can run because the body adapts to that specific running form however we've seen that the uh, best athletes in the world have slightly longer strides and slightly lower stride frequencies for example in the case of kenyan athletes so if we can change unconsciously our stride length and our stride frequency for example by getting stronger in the gym or by doing running technique exercise or by being more flexible uh, we will improve our our performance but the changes have to be progressive and a consequence of the training do done in the gym or by doing running technique exercises if we try to change our running technique consciously our running economy will be worse okay yeah i got it and uh, yeah it totally makes makes sense like for example those gym exercises especially if it's plyometric but even those explosive can i guess uh improve the 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 recoil that you get from uh, from your running stride so that and that will be be one example of how you can slightly increase the length of your stride uh, let's get into the last topic that I want to discuss today, which is predictors of running performance. You've investigated those as well. And uh, can you talk about that a bit? Well, uh, when we try to predict performance, we have to look for different factors. The, uh, in endurance performance, the typical ones are the physiological ones. So when we look at physiology, the three main ones are the VO2 max, which might be a good discriminator between bath and good runners. But if we go to a homogeneous group of good runners, VO2max uh, is worthless. It doesn't uh, have any relation with performance. So a VO2max, a minimum VO2max is necessary in order to be an elite athlete. But once you have that minimum VO2max, then it's fine. Actually, most of the best African runners in the world have quite modest VO2maxes, for example, around 65, 64 and that's not amazing. For example, myself have has an, an uh, a view to max of eighty one, and I am definitely not an elite runner uh, that can go for the to the Olympic Games. Uh, the second factor will be the running economy. We've chatted about this quite a lot, and the third one will be the lactate threshold. These are the main pillars of endurance performance, but there are many others. For example, one physiological parameter recently described is the brain oxygenation. We can actually somehow predict performance taking into account how much the brain oxygenation drops when we are close to exhaustion. We've seen, for example, in African runners that they are able to keep their brain oxygenation stable, even at maximal intensities. But in Europeans, it doesn't happen that way. In Europeans, when we are exercising at, mass, at high intensities, the brain oxygenation goes down. And when it goes down by a certain amount, we simply stop exercising. So that parameter also affects performance. Do, do, we, know, the, do, do we know why that is? Why the Africans can keep it up and the Europeans can't to the same extent? Yeah, well, basically, when we are exercising at high intensities, especially uh, higher than the respiratory compensation point, what we are doing is breathing quite a lot 
and we are uh, taking out a lot of CO2. So by doing so, the partial pressure of CO2, or CO2 in our blood goes down, and this implies a vasoconstriction. That vasoconstriction uh, reduces the blood flow to the brain. So the brain oxygenation goes down, and that affects the cortical activation of the neurons in the prefrontal cortex. This area is related to the decision-making. What happens in African runners? This doesn't happen. And why? Basically, we think this is just a hypothesis that due to different early life factors, such as prenatal exposure to high altitudes, high amounts of exercise activities during childhood, they develop certain characteristics, included a greater vascularization of the brain. So this might explain why they don't suffer these brain oxygenation decrements at maximal intensities. Okay. Uh, and uh, go on with uh, talking about the predictors of running performance. Are there any others that we should mention? Well, uh, depending on the sport for endurance performance, definitely in the swimming part, the biomechanics is, is a very is a key factor, I would say. With a bad technique, you can't be a, an elite swimmer, definitely. And, and the same happens, for example, in cycling. A good aerodynamic position is important, but not determinant. In order to be a great cyclist, you obviously need certain physiological characteristics. But I will say that the, one of the main determinants of performance, especially at elite level, is to have a very strong mind. I've seen that you've chatted to Samuel Marcora, one Italian guy yes. that does a lot of research on, on the psychological part of the, of the sport. And basically, according to his theory, the main determinant of endurance performance will be the perceived uh, sensation of effort or something like that. So I will say that the mind plays a big role as well. Mm. And uh, you've done some work on using heart rate parameters on that, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us about, about that a little bit? Yeah, we've seen that the lactic threshold is actually quite related to certain heart rate parameters, like heart rate variability and stuff. So we are trying to develop a heart rate monitor that can estimate your lactic threshold just by measuring your heart rate variability. So we are doing artificial intel intelligence models with an engineer, engineering company, and hopefully in less than a year we will have... Uh, a new heart rate monitor that can estimate the lactate threshold without the need of taking blood samples to measure lactate. So we think that in the future, this will be will be a, a great thing. Well, Jordan, you need to email me when, when that's uh, out uh, because then we absolutely have to have you on the show again to talk a little bit about that because that's exciting. Uh, so I think that uh, it's time to wrap it up and move into the rapid fire questions that uh, I wanted to answer in just one short sentence, uh, 15 seconds or less or so. So mm -hmm. the first is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to endurance sport? I will say that the book published by Alice Hutchinson, Endure Mind, Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. It's a great book. I highly recommend to everybody interested in sport to read this book. Great book. And listen to episode 101, where I interviewed Alex about that topic. Uh, what's a personal habit that's, that's helped you achieve success? Discipline. You have to be like a soldier. If you have discipline, you can achieve everything you want. And who's somebody in your field of expertise uh, that you look up to? My former supervisor, Timothy David Noakes. 
And he was on episodes 43 and 44, I believe. So I'll link to those as well in the show notes and all the other episodes mentioned. Jordan, this has been great. Uh, Is there any way that the listeners can connect with you on social media, for example, Twitter, uh, any? Yeah, Uh, you can find me at at Jordan Sudafrica on Twitter. And you can find me on Instagram as well, at Jordan Sudafrica and on Facebook. And if anybody wants to email me or if want to request papers or my research, they can email me to jordan.santos at ehu.eus. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jordan, for sharing your knowledge about running and endurance sports today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. Here are my quick, most important takeaways from this interview. First, strength training. We can't get around this. It's once again uh, come up how important it is. Up to a 10% improvement in a running economy can be possible with strength training. And this is heavy weights, low reps and high speed strength training. The other part of the running economy that we talked about is uh, more or a more broad takeaway, I should say, is uh, that we can improve other aspects of of running economy. So one example would be the barefoot running to get a more forefoot strike, which can be beneficial for economy. The the thing to take away in general is that uh, conscious uh, changes to your running form usually impair running economy. So you want to make the changes to your running form or biomechanics unconscious consequences of changes to things like your flexibility, your tendon stiffness, etc. and not uh, conscious changes to that form. And uh, another takeaway is that knowing that at least 90% of the listeners probably have never done a lactate test and uh, won't do that in the near future, I think it's important to know what the validity of things like a 20-minute field test is. And what Jordan said was basically that for us amateur athletes, it's pretty okay, which is good. The error is in the region of uh, 5%, which isn't terrible by any means. I can certainly live with that. Uh, so, uh, So I think that's positive news and important information as well. Finally, once again, we get a guest telling us how important the mind really is. Definitely go and listen to the episodes mentioned and the guests mentioned on the interview. Samuele Marcoda back in episode 17 and Alex Hutchinson in episode 101. I'll link to both of those in the show notes and episode description and learn more about how important the mind is in endurance performance. As usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com. Any questions or comments or feedback or anything you want to discuss, leave your comments there in the comment section for this episode and uh, I will get back to you there. If you have suggestions for topics and uh, guests for the podcast, uh, definitely let me know. Contact me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. Or tweet me on Twitter where my handle is at Cy Triad. 
And as I said a few episodes ago, if you are an age grouper that think you have something that other age groupers might find useful from your triathlon story, whether you're a beginner or an advanced athlete, send me an email and I'd be glad to interview you because I'm looking for some age grouper to, to interview to get a variety of guests and a variety of episodes on this podcast. In the next episode, sports psychologist Carrie Cheadle makes a repeat appearance on the podcast to discuss the mental aspect of dealing with injury, something that's uh, all too relevant for me, not having run since some time before Christmas and uh, watching uh, my whole season shatter in front of me with uh, no running. But there is the silver lining that uh, I get to double down on my coaching and on the podcast, of course. So uh, anyway, that uh, episode is uh, very useful. It was useful for me to interview Carrie, and I'm sure that you will find it useful whether you are currently injured or not, because at some point you will at least have a niggle. If you haven't already, I would really, really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review for the podcast on iTunes or on the Apple Podcast app. It is what keeps the show going. I spent a lot of time doing this podcast and I couldn't do it without uh, sponsorship. So, And uh, listeners uh, is uh, what uh, keeps uh, the sponsors coming to the show. So, uh, And review, ratings and reviews help those uh, listeners find the show. So it's all this feedback loop of the more you rate and review, the more you help keep the show alive and going. It is a really big time commitment, I have to say, and it's uh, something that I love to do, but at the same time, it's challenging to keep the lights on, especially at this rate of episodes. So so please, 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 if you have even, if you have even just a couple of minutes to spare, I would really love if you could leave a rating and review, and don't leave it to the next person. Do it yourself. Thank you so much. Finally, thank you to our great sponsors for sponsoring this episode. Ventum is the first one and their bikes are easier to build, pack and travel with than any other superbike. And the backstory of this uh, travel easiness is that Ventum co-founder Jimmy Sear, our guest back in episode 115, is a former pro triathlete from Australia. And one of his biggest complaints about his old bike was how much of a pain it was to to break it down and, and pack it up for travel. So if you travel to races, then this alone is a reason to check out Ventum. And of course, there are tons of other reasons, like getting 110% of the value of your old bike towards the purchase of a new Ventum bike. And they have very flexible payment plans as well. Uh, So that makes choosing a Ventum a no-brainer. Go check them out on VentumRacing.com. And thank you to Precision Hydration, one particular moment of this podcast that uh, I keep thinking back to and that will always uh, uh, stay with me is Jessica Polnicki in episode 40 saying how it should be considered a sin when athletes put in all this time into training but then their nutrition and hydration is just an afterthought and they suffer impaired performance, uh, cramps or worse because of that as a consequence. Well, Precision Hydration makes it easy for you not to commit this sin. You can take a free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to get your personalized hydration strategy for your next race. You'll know exactly what to do and with what products you can do it. 
and your first box of precision hydration product will be free when you use the discount code that triathlon show all one word all caps on precisionhydration.com thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlons